Let's get rolling. One thing I did forget to mention, there is foundations class right after service today if you want to stick around for that. Whether you plan to or not doesn't really matter. You're more than welcome to stay. But we're in this new series, and I think this series is very important. It's something the Lord put on my heart several months ago, and I've been studying, preparing for this, and there's a reason for it. Um, And I think we would all agree with this. Uh, The world we live in today has no sense of reality. Is that a fair statement? Like, did you hear the president just talk about how, you know, the economy's doing pretty good except for gas prices and food prices? <laughs> Hello, McFly. That's for some of you older folks will catch that reference. Thank you, Stan, for laughing at that. I appreciate that. But when you talk about what's going on, it's like we look around us. I mean, it's like we don't know what bathroom to use. We don't know the difference between a male and a female. We don't know anything because we are lost in some warped sense of reality. And All this comes back to, everything that we talk about is true. Truth matters. It always matters. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter even how you feel about the situation if it's not truth. Truth matters. We don't have to like it. I wish I could identify as a good golfer. But every time I go out, they remind me I'm not a good golfer. I'd love to identify as that. But we can't. I have to live in the real world. You know, when we talk about the reality, this alternate reality, we're starting to get our focus on the things that matter. That's really the point of this. We look at the definition. It's the world of the state of things of as they actually exist as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. How long before you think they change the definition of this word? Because that's where we live. As they actually exist exists not this pie in the sky dream not this concept that sounds good on paper but how do they actually function you know we talk about capitalism and 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 socialism and all the other isms that are out there while all of them have their flaws as they actually exist one creates significant opportunities and one does the opposite of that unless you're a politician then it works out pretty well The reality that we live in needs to be the spiritual world. That needs to be our reality. What this thing tells us that we are to do, that we are to say, how we are to believe, how we are to behave, all of those things need to be our reality. And unfortunately, in the church today, that is not the case. You know, there's always this statement that goes around, do your work unto the Lord. Okay? Do your work unto unto the Lord. In other words, it's like God himself is your boss. And when you are doing work, you do it as if you are doing it to please him, which means what? You'll do a good job. You won't cut corners, right? And that's how it should be. When somebody hears that you're a born-again believer and they're looking to hire you for a job, that should move you up a notch because they should know that you have character and work ethic. And you're not going to milk the clock, and you're not going to cut corners when nobody's looking. You're going to do your job the way you're supposed to do your job. Is that reality? If you've ever employed anybody, you know the answer to that. Right, Mike? Yeah, he knows. When I was going to Rhema, okay, Bible school, Rhema Bible school, mind you, I had an interview with Coke. I was looking for a, I needed a night job. The day, I was working days at Sears, looking for a night job. And uh, my to-be boss, his name was Kelly, he was going through my applications in the interview process. He's like, okay, yeah, sounds good. You got experience. Yeah, I think you're doing it. He's like, oh, you're, you're attending Rama? I said, yeah. He's like, oh, we don't hire Rama students. So what do you think I'm thinking? 
I'm like, how dare you, you bigot? You know why? Because of the work ethic. He's fired four of them. He fired them because they were stealing product, or he caught them sleeping in the back room of a store. You ever try to sleep on a pallet of Coke? Me neither, but it doesn't look comfy. And so when I went in there, I'm like, I don't, I don't do that. So like, he's like, I'll give you 90 days, and we'll give it a shot. And thankfully he did, and it worked out really well, and, and all of that. Because when I went to work, I actually went to work, you know, things like that. But I, it just blew my mind, I'm thinking, man. And you know what was funny is that the school itself had talked about these things. That when you go out into the public... You are representing Rama, whether you realize it or not. When you tell somebody you're a student of Rama, you represent the school. So maybe think through that as you're out there. I had a lady I sat next to. She was an older gal because there was all age groups. You know, we had people who were retired that were coming to school. We had people that were our age that were going to school. And I sat next to this lady, and I'd never met her before. And it was the first day of this class. And I said, "Hey, how are you?" You know, she's like, "I'm blessed and highly favored. I don't accept anything less." And I'm like, "Okay, then." Maybe I don't need to talk to you the rest of the term. Not two weeks later, I saw her yelling at some guy at the Walmart because he got her parking spot. And the only thing that went through my head that I did not say, I actually had self-control, is like, well, who's favored now? It's besides the point. But here I am thinking, you represent Raymond, you're screaming at a guy in a parking lot. Like, the reality that we live in is that when things happen against us, we do not respond in kind, it's a whole idea, turn the other cheek. There's right and there's wrong, and there are things that we stand up for, and we don't just roll over and play dead and pretend that these things don't exist, but there are things that we do and behave differently. How we work should be different. How we carry on in life should be different. The way the economy is right now, our reaction to it should be completely different. Instead of whining about the gas prices all the time, and they're high, I had to run my credit card three times last night to fill up my truck, We should be grateful that the Lord has provided enough that we can still fill up our truck. That we can still operate and still do the things. Because the last time I checked is regardless of the gas prices, God's got an endless bank account. And if he truly is the one who meets our needs according to his riches and his glory, then mine are irrelevant. Y'all awake? You see, this is the reality that we live in. There is a difference between how the world responds, and this is what we've been talking about, and how a believer responds. There's a difference between how the world will act and how a believer reacts. And we need to start acting like it. In John chapter 17, verse 13, I read this last week. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, that I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. So, what is Jesus saying? There's two groups. My group, the other group. And as we began to look at this and see this in Scripture, and I realize some of this is like, well, yeah, I kind of already know that, but I really want you to get this. Is that in the beginning, God created two imagers, man and woman, to be his representative on the earth, his ambassador. So when we're created in God's image, he's not talking about necessarily how we look. Does he look like us? I don't know. I've never seen him. 
where he's talking about the responsibility that came with that. When he separates the nations in Genesis 10, he takes Abraham to create a nation as his inheritance. That would be the nation of Israel. And what were they to do? Be God's representative on the earth. They're his imager. So when the world sees how God is responding to them, they will know that there is one true God. Can we see that played out in Scripture? Yep. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I now know that your God is supreme. There are other gods. There are all sorts of gods. God could be anything you want it to be. But there's one true God. So there's a distinction that was made there. There was another part in there that they had to do with their, their laws and all of that they had to behave. One of which was to keep the Sabbath, to keep it holy, which means they did something that no other nation did. They didn't work one day a week. They didn't have this 40-hour thing that we we bought into. One day a week they took off. It was to honor God, and it was for God to allow himself to show himself mighty. Because no matter what, they were provided for. When they came out of Egypt, they were provided for. No matter what they did, no matter how bad they got, and as long as they stayed in covenant, they were blessed. And when they got out of covenant, they were cursed. And it was a sign to all the world. But there was another part in there in the Ten Commandments, and we often get this wrong. It says, do not take the name the Lord your God in vain. And how we have turned that is we've turned it into, well, don't use God's names in a cuss word. And that's a good thing to not do, just so you know. In fact, don't say any of the cuss words. Just leave God out of it completely. But that's not what he's talking about. When he talks about his imager and taking his name, you are taking him on yourself, the representative. It's as if you're wearing a, uh, uh, one of those sandwich boards that says, I am a believer in Christ. And you had it on all the time. And so when you're in Walmart and they're aggravating you, you should be thinking about, have I taken his name? Do people know that I'm a believer? Because we should respond differently. You guys see what I'm saying? When we get to the New Testament, We've got believer and unbeliever. It's no longer Jew and Gentile. The Jewish people matter. But it is believer and unbeliever. There's always been a distinction between God's people and the people of the world. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about the person who doesn't keep the commandments of God, the things that Jesus had told them to do, has now lied to themselves because they say that they know him, but they are not doing what he says. Now, if I were to ask you, what percentage of the church world that claims to be a part of the church today meets that criteria? In other words, they say that I know him, but I'm ignoring his commandments. Could we say half? Comfortably? Could it be more? Because some of them are just at out making their own thing and created a God in their image. Then you have followers of Yahweh who truly are disciples of Christ, but still Ignore a good chunk of his commandments. And you're going to see some of those today. You see, in the Old Testament, Israel knew God and were in covenant relationship with him when they obeyed the commandments. But when we read this, who is John writing to? That's the question. Is he writing to an unbelieving world? Is there any scripture that was written to 
the unbeliever? No. All of them were written to covenant people in God. Fair enough? That means that everything that is there is applicable in one way or another when we rightly divide the Scriptures to how I should live. There's nothing addressing how an unbeliever should live. You guys with me? So when we asked this, I said, who is our example? You see, in the passage we just read, it says, he who says he abides in him ought, also, uh, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Who's he? Jesus. That means whatever Jesus did, we should be doing. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, it says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. This is Paul. So who are we imitating? Ultimately, Christ. Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Who are we imitating? God. The question is, how do we do this? Because you've got to understand something. There's two realities that are happening. There's the world's reality, and then there's the truth. You see, the world's reality will tell you things like, live your life. Love is love. Be who you want. Chase your dreams. Find your destiny. Is that God's reality? No. Scripture tells us over and over again that we are at service to Him in covenant relationship with Him. That we don't have to chase our dreams. Our dreams change to fit what God wants. We're always looking for something greater. Now, how do we walk in the example that Christ has left? In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it says this. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. And He sent them two by two before His face into every city and a place where He Himself was about to go. So how many did He send? He sent 70. Prior to this, he sent the 12, okay? You know the book of Luke. He sent the 12 out. He sent them out to go in front of him. Now he is sending out 70. Now, this tells us something that is very important. All of our attention always goes on the 12 disciples, all of it. But there are a lot of people following him around. I don't know if you know this, but I'm going to help you out here, okay? You can't feed 5,000 people without first having 5,000 people near you. They didn't show up for the buffet, they were following him because word had gotten out that he was there and they were congregating together because they wanted to hear what he was saying. There was something so unique about him. Because remember, they were in awe at the words that he spoke. He spoke as one having authority. Let's go down to verse 8. This is Jesus telling them this is to the 70, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, they do not receive you. Go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Now, this is interesting. Are they full of the Holy Spirit like you and I? No. Not like you and I. Holy Spirit hasn't fallen yet. Are they in covenant relationship like you and I? No. Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. There's an authority that has been given to them. And what is the expectation? What did he tell them to do? When you enter the city, whatever city you enter, and they receive you. That's important. Because if they reject them, what do they do? Wipe the dust off your feet. Nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But he tells them something. He says, go heal the sick. And tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now that's an interesting statement. You notice he didn't say, go and pray for them. Go and pray that if it is God's will, go pray that I should do it when I come. 
because they're going before him, so he's coming after them. He didn't tell them any of that. He said, you go and you heal the sick. So what is Jesus' expectation of them? It's pretty simple. It's threefold, okay? Go into the city that receives you. You are expected to heal the sick. Don't come back with your stupid excuses. They didn't have enough faith. We didn't know if it was your will. We were just unsure. No, he says, go and heal them and tell them the kingdom has come near to you. And the third part of that, if they don't receive you, tell them the kingdom of God just came near to you and you missed it. You guys see this? So the expectation is to do exactly what Jesus does. That's interesting, isn't it? This isn't the 12. This isn't the special ones. This is just your average guy that was kind of hanging out with Jesus. I want to show you something in John chapter 3. Now, this is an area that we know very well. But I want to show you the two realities that are on display here that we often overlook and we don't realize what's happening. In John chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1, okay? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So you know where I'm at, right? This is the John 3.16, right? We understand the Pharisees. Why would the Pharisees be around? Did they like Jesus? No, they did not like Jesus. They were wanting to get rid of him. Nicodemus comes. He's a ruler of the Jews. Okay, so he's in higher up. That comes into play later. The man came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So there's something here that has happened. Nicodemus has had a revelation of who Jesus truly is. And how did that happen? wasn't by his words, necessarily, but it was by the confirmation and signs that followed the words that he said. In other words, if you go into any area in the world, and they are sitting in wheelchairs, and you reach down and you pull them up, and everybody who knows them knows that they have been in that wheelchair for 25 years, and now they're walking as a result of you being there, guess what happens? Their ears are attentive. In fact, I'll tell you this story, and I'm, I may be getting ahead, but the guy that's coming in August that's got this healing ministry, he was telling me a time that he was, he was preaching, and he said, you could tell they were listening, but they weren't listening, right? I said, oh, yeah, they probably have kids. So he's teaching, and he's trying to get some of this, get, get their faith built up so they know what he's talking about, and they're just not getting it. And finally he says, I just got to stop. And he's just praying. He said, does anybody in here have trouble hearing? And somebody was deaf in their one ear. He says, come up here. As he comes up here, he lays hands on him. The ear pops open. man's like, I can hear. He's like, I know. Thank you, Jesus. He sits down. Guess what happened after that? He had their attention. Interesting, isn't it? So here he is. Something has gotten Nicodemus' attention. The fact is that he goes to Jesus by night because he doesn't want anybody to know. Because what happens if he goes? There's two parts of this. One, it's a confirmation that a Pharisee is now receiving Christ. That's a problem. People would see that and know that. And then word would get back to the other Pharisees. It may cost him his life, certainly his position. What does Jesus say? He answered him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that's an interesting statement. This is the first time, from what I can tell, that this term is used, born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, how is Nicodemus reacting? Is he reacting spiritually or is he reacting as the world would? If you had never heard the term born again your entire life, 
You'd never heard that. And you showed up at a church service. You're not a Christian. You never heard anything about this. And some dude's up on a stage saying, you must be born again. You're having those same thoughts. Because you are thinking carnally. You don't know any different. Nicodemus doesn't know any different. So he's not aware of the two realities that are going on that Jesus is uh, mentioning here. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, most assuredly I say, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What do we have? Two different things. Now, I've, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again in case you didn't, you weren't here when I've talked about this. But this is not talking about baptism in any way or water baptism. This is a debate that's gone on. It is talking born naturally and born spiritually. There's two different parts to that because you cannot be born spiritually. Stay with me. If you're not born naturally. That went over way worse than I thought it was going to. That was funnier than y'all are giving me credit for. The thing is, is like, can you be born naturally and not spiritually? Yeah, but you can't reverse those. Okay, tough crowd. Moving right along. So here's the deal. He is showing that there is a distinction here. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So you're sitting here thinking, duh, Nicodemus, why do you not understand this? You've been trained. You know the Scripture. He probably has memorized the entire Torah. How does he not understand what Jesus is saying? I understand it. You understand it. So surely by now that Jesus has explained it, He's on board. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? In other words, he's still thinking carnally. He is not thinking spiritually. He is not aware of the reality that Jesus is referencing. Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? So should he have known them? Yes, or Jesus wouldn't rebuke him for it. Most assuredly, I say, We speak what we know, and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Earthly things, heavenly things. Natural things, spiritual things. If you can't put these two together, how will you believe anything that I say? Most assuredly I say, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's a new one. What life on earth is eternal? Nothing. So Jesus is making another claim. Everlasting life. You have to be thinking spiritually to understand it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come in. 
And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who uh, does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen and that they may be, have been done in God. Do you guys see the distinction that Jesus is making? He is educating Nicodemus. And even though he should have known, because it is clear in what we call the Old Testament, he's making a distinction between the natural world and the supernatural world. Now you notice here that whoever believes in him, not believes that he existed, because Nicodemus at this point believed that he existed. All the other Pharisees believed that he existed, but he came by night because there was something unique about him. That belief in is trust in what we call faith. You're putting your trust in him. You notice Jesus didn't say that if you take the Eucharist or that if you get baptized or that if you give or that you pay a certain amount. He didn't say any of that. You guys see the thing here? See, carnal minds add things to the gospel to make it something that we can understand. But you can't understand that carnally because it doesn't make a lick of sense in this world. Everlasting life, who has that? Who wants that? There's a distinction being made here. I've got to get you to understand that. Because from that, you have to understand how we walk in this new life. Because the new life is not to come, it is now. If your eyes are on the reality that Jesus is referencing. Our hope is not in this world, not in the economy, and I hope it's not in the president, regardless of who's in there. We're hosed if that's the case. You see, it's always in the supernatural what God has done on our behalf. Is it our responsibility to walk in that? 100%. So you've got to understand something. We were rescued from the enemy. We were removed from this world. That's hard to say because have we been removed from this world? No, but we've been removed from this world. You can't get there thinking carnally. Look at this. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 9. For this reason, we also, since the day that we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this is a prayer from Paul. For the people who are believers, there's a lot that could be said here. This is how we should live. Verse 11, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. For all suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. And He conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of His sins. Now that's an interesting statement. Because Paul is implying here somehow that we were delivered from the power of darkness. That we've been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son and that we have been redeemed. Now redeemed means that we were bought back. Now that's weird because does it feel like you've been redeemed today? No. Do you feel like you've been delivered from the power of darkness? Probably not. You ever been attacked? Me too. So if that's the case, then what on earth is Paul talking about? Because I don't live in this reality. I live in a reality where bad things happen to good people. 
I live in the reality where I have hard times, where people will come against you, or things will happen in your life that doesn't make any sense. I don't feel redeemed. I don't feel delivered. I don't feel any of this. Why on earth not? Because he's not talking about this earth. If we just went on the spiritual side, have we been brought away from the power of darkness? Completely delivered? Absolutely. Why? We're created in the image of Him. Have we been conveyed into His kingdom? Absolutely. We know where our hope is. We know what's going to happen. Have we been redeemed? Absolutely. But do you see the differences? How we respond is always carnal. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now that's interesting. Because what was the, the, for them to stay in fellowship, when I say them, those under the Mosaic Covenant, which was the nation of Israel, what did they have to do? Everything. They had to do everything. Was there grace? Not in the sense that we use it. I mean, yes, but no. Because grace is like, well, it's all right. We'll just brush that one off. No. What happens when they got it wrong? Go get you an animal. We'll sacrifice that animal. What happens if you walk by and accidentally bumped into a dead thing? Oh, got a mikvah, got a sacrifice. What happens if you just had a bad day and you kind of turned your back on God? What did you do? What happened? Cursing's brought. What happens if you didn't obey every word that God said? Well, you might end up in bondage. See, those were carnal mindsets, trying to keep everything. That's, have we adopted that in the church world today? Absolutely. That's why we've got all these things that we add to the gospel. You've got to believe. You've got to do. You've got to do all this other stuff. But on the spiritual side, it's everyone that believes in him has the blessing of Abraham. The Gentiles are coming to Christ. We receive the promise of the Spirit. In other words, it's all based off of what Christ did. That's the reality that we live in. Does it make sense to the natural world? No, not at all. You see, we were redeemed from the curse that was on this earth. What you have to understand, and this is what I want you to get today, why, while we know it, we don't think of it this way, and we don't walk in this reality, is that there was a battle that took place. And a battle was won. And at one point, the enemy thought he won. Because had he known the result of Christ dying on the cross, do you think he would have crucified him? Surely not. You see, he thought, if I could get rid of the Son of God, then I could stop God's plan. Pretty arrogant. But the battle took place, was won by Christ, not on the cross, but through the resurrection. People died. People died on the cross. Is it at least plausible to assume that at some point, the enemy stirred up people against somebody else and crucified them also? It's at least plausible. How do you win that battle ultimately? You come back from the dead. Neener, 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 right? You see, it was a battle that took place that the enemy wasn't prepared for because he wasn't watching for that. I want to show you an example of this. 
I'm not going to tell you that this is typology in any way, but I'm, I find it fascinating as something that's similar that's happened. Now, I've talked about this before, and we're going to Daniel chapter 5, about a time that a nation sieged in and took over, and nobody knew it. Let me show you this. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lord. You guys know this passage if you've read the Bible at all. This is the writing on the wall part. And drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lord and his wives and his concubine might drink from them, that they... Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and that the kings and his lord and the wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Now, I'm going to stop there for a moment. Now, I've never run a nation, never been king of anything. Nobody has asked me to do so. But when you have things that were set apart, consecrated, holy, used in service and sacrificed to God, perhaps... Bringing them as utensil in a party, bad idea. Not going to end well. This is the arrogance, right? They did not look at these things as if they were holy. They just looked at them as average, everyday thing. Were they? No, not at all. Verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed. And his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. So he's freaked out. The king said, cried aloud to bring the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. The king, then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. So what did he turn to? What he knew. He's looking for someone to explain what just happened. He's freaking out. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and the lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let the countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar of your father, your father the king, made him the chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting a dream, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas, were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Now that's interesting, because what would Daniel do to get to that position? He'd live his life in a way contrary to what everybody else was doing in the natural. Hey, just eat the food. Hey, when they blow the horn, just bow down. We see time and time again of examples of this. Something about him was so unique. Was he well treated? Yeah, at some point. Was he now? We don't know. We knew he was Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man, but he got there through trial. We know all of this stuff. He was living different. He was thinking of the supernatural world the entire time. Why did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not fear the furnace? Because they knew God would deliver them. Would you have feared the furnace? Me too. Daniel and the lion's den, all of these, you know, was there a veggie tales of that one too, I think? So they ate pizza. That's right. They ate the pizza, you know? Just a little disservice. Was he freaking out? No, he's probably riding one around the room. That's what I would have done. There's something unique about it. He didn't fear because he knew the, nat- or the supernatural side. That was his reality. 
Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke uh, and said to Daniel, are you the Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that you, uh, heard of you that the spirit of God is in you and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretation, explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you should be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Now, again, what's happening? Daniel's brought in because of how he has lived his life. He's lived his life clean in a dirty world, so to speak. So now the king is in such need that you've got the Spirit of God and light and understanding and wisdom are in you. All my other guys that I have leaned on could not do this. But if you can, if you can give me the interpretation, I'll make you rich. I'll make you famous. I'll give you power. I'll give you everything that you could want. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now, what did he say? I don't need your stuff. Your stuff in this natural world, because of what the supernatural gift God has given me, I don't want it. He also did not say, I will do my best to attempt to read it. He said, I will give you the interpretation. Now, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, why didn't one of these other guys just make something up? Nobody knew what it said. Again, that's what I would have done, but whatever. Verse 18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. Now stop. How did he know that? You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, up Harrison. This is the interpreter of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persian. Then Belshazzar gave the command. They clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. So this is important stuff. Even though Daniel came in here and said, what's going to happen? Your kingdom, it's finished. You've been tried, you lost. Your kingdom's divided, it's been handed over to the Medes and the Persians. That's very specific. And look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede, 
received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, what do we see happened? Nothing. We see that he was slain. Exactly as God had said. But it doesn't talk about anything else. It doesn't talk about the battle that took place and how they kicked down the door and that how all the different groups were fighting against one another and they finally broke into the king's palace and they killed him. It doesn't talk about that, which is interesting because none of that actually happened. You see, in Isaiah 13, this was all prophesied. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver. And as for gold, they will not delight in it. And their, also their bows will dash the young men to pieces and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, when, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. Nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. Isaiah 21, 9, and look. Here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. None of this is said, but there is one in here that's very powerful. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. We're going to go into chapter 45. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So you know this prophecy is 150 years before this happens. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you through, uh, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light, create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, there's a lot that was going on here, and I'm giving you the fast version because I have talked about this before. But you've got to understand what was taking place is that God had made a decree against Babylon that they would be overthrown, that his, 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 his kingdom has been taken away from him. And we see that happen, but we don't see how it happened. There's a Greek historian named Herodotus, and he described Babylon as having a hundred gates in the circuit of the wall, all of the bronze with bronze uprights and lentils. In Cyrus's account, he has a cylinder that reports that Marduk allowed him to enter Babylon without battle. He was received as a liberator. There's the Chronicle of Nabonidus. Uh, it was a pro-Persian contemporary account, similar view. There's all of these different things, but it tells us that a siege of Babylon by the Persian uh, that ended when Cyrus diverted the Euphrates River and sent a company inside the wall. Now look at this. This is from Herodotus. Cyrus was now reduced to great perplexity as time went on and he made no progress against the place. In this distress, either someone made the suggestion to him or he thought himself of a plan which he proceeded to put into execution. He placed a portion of his army at the point where the river enters the city and another body at the back of the place where it issues forth with orders to march into the town by the bed of the stream. And as soon as the water became shallow enough, he then himself drew off with the unwarlike portion of his host and made for the place uh, where uh, Nitocris dug the basin for the river. 
where he did exactly what she had done formerly. He turned the Euphrates by a canal into the basin, which was then a marsh, on which the river sank to such an extent that the natural bed of the stream became fordable. They say it was about up to a man's kneecap. Hereupon the Persians who had been left for this purpose at Babylon by the riverside into the stream, which had now sunk so as to reach about midway up a man's thigh. And thus gotten into the town, he had, uh, had the Babylonians been apprised of what Cyrus was about, or had they noticed their danger, they would have never allowed the Persians to enter the city, but would have destroyed them utterly. For they would have made fast all the street gates, which gave access to the river, and mounting upon the walls along the sides of the stream, would so have caught the enemy, as it were, in a trap. But as it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise, and so took the city. Owing to the vast size of the place, the inhabitants of the central parts, as the residents of Babylon declare, long after the outer portions of the town were taken, knew nothing of what had changed. But as they were engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling until they learnt about the capture. Such then were the circumstances of the first taking of Babylon. They were taken over, Belshazzar was killed, and it took a while for word to get out that there had been a change in the ruler. You see, what you've got to understand how this corresponds. The enemy did not realize what was going to happen. He thought by getting rid of Jesus, we'd get rid of the problem. If he'd known that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, thus conquering death, he would have never killed him. You and I were bought through battle and redeemed. It was a battle that the enemy did not see coming. And then we see that he makes a show of them openly. Let me show you these verses. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and he filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so when they answered, he received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now let me ask you this. Who killed Jesus? Nobody. Nobody killed him. He gave up his life. The cross didn't kill him. He gave up his spirit. Not until he said it is finished. Look in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of sins of, fl of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which also you were raised with him. Through faith in the working of God. Who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him. Having forgiven, forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way. Having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over over them in it. Now, stop for a moment. In him is the key. In him is the distinction between the natural flesh and the supernatural body that God has given us. In him we're circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Well, that doesn't make sense because that's not how circumcision works. Yeah, you're correct if you're only thinking naturally. In him we put off the body of sins of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. We were buried with him in baptism. baptism. Were you buried? No. In which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. Oh, were you raised with him? Not naturally. He has made us alive together in him. And then it says he wiped up the handwriting of requirements that were against us, nailing it to the cross. What did he do? 
That's the tetelestai. It is finished. That would what be written on a, a decree from a judge that was given to you. And at the moment that you had fulfilled your sentence, you would have that thing and it would write tetelestai on it, which you would take with you everywhere you go. And when they tried to bring up that order, you could show that it had been paid for in full. You could not be tried again. That is what that literally means. But then he says the last part, and this is where it gets interesting. He disarmed principalities and powers. Who did Jesus disarm? Did he take the Roman army out? He's not talking naturally. He disarmed them, the principalities and powers. What are we talking about? The rulers of this age. He disarmed them. What arms do they now have? Did they go find some in a box in a closet somewhere? No. That means what weapon that is formed against you can prosper? None of them can because Jesus disarmed them. If you're living on this supernatural side, the enemy goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Who may he devour? Anybody thinking carnally, living carnally. I don't mean immoral. I mean not spiritual. He disarmed them and he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. Let me show you one more verse that talks about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Two different groups. Are believer and unbeliever both going to die naturally? Yes. Are believer and unbeliever both going to perish supernaturally? No, there's a distinction. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, we are the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, this is a cute passage. We'll we'll read it and we'll assume that we know. But here's the thing. When a Roman conqueror, would go into a land and he would destroy it. The first thing he would do is he would take all the captives and take them on a triumphal procession. He would lead them through, making a public spectacle of them. Many a time, strip them of their clothing. This is what he would do. He was showing who's in charge now. They've been disarmed. They've been defeated. They no longer have power over the people. There's a new sheriff in town. I can come up with all sorts of analogies if you want. The Roman Senate would normally decree a public thanksgiving before a triumphal procession. So when they would do this, this is all by decree, they would go in and they would lead those people through, showing the world who is in charge now. He disarmed principalities and powers. But what about this part here? He said, through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Well, that's weird. What fragrance is he talking about? We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He seems to have a lot to say about odor here. To the one, we are the aroma of death. To the other, the aroma of life. There's a smell thing that Paul is making a point. And this is it. When sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament, And elsewhere through the ancient world, they would burn incense because the smell would be so strong. And it would have been the same thing during a Roman triumphal celebration. They would have burned this incense because there were bodies that would be being burned and rotting on the side because a battle took place. 
And they would go through and they would burn this incense. You see, this is a victory march. A victory march by our Savior. You see, he, Paul also talks about we are not as many peddling the Word of God. That is because a lot of times that professional speakers would come into the area and they would peddle whatever they're saying and they're trying to get money out of people. Paul's like, that's not what we're doing. So like Daniel, you keep your stuff. I'll tell you what God said. Paul never said, give me money. He never did any of that. He just did what God said. The public would perceive these teachers as charlatans. But Paul didn't just go with word and with speech. It was a demonstration of this new world that he was now a citizen of. You see, Jesus was setting all of this up ahead of time. When he's dealing with Pilate, what does he say? John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Pilate said, well, then are you a king? And Jesus said, you, are rightly, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What kingdom is he talking about? This one. You and I are a part of. Because he went in. He made a public show after he defeated. What do we fear on this earth? Nothing. I don't care what the economies are. I don't care who presidents are. Not that we shouldn't do things. Don't misunderstand me. But if we're living over here, we're not fearful. What happens if the economy, what if the crash, what if the dollar no longer becomes the source of everything in the world? Okay. What if we all lose our houses? Okay. Our businesses, our farms, or whatever. What if it all goes away? Who's your source? We work while we're here unto the Lord. What if God said, I want you to give your house away? How many people would be willing to do that? Well, God, where am I going to live? That shouldn't be the first thing out of your mouth. You see, Christ died by giving up his life. No man took it from him. He gave it up. We see him say that. No man takes my life. I lay it down. He can never die again because he's not subject to death. Look at Revelation verse 1, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he said his right, uh, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. How long is forevermore? It's forever. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. How did he get those? He made a public spectacle. He won the battle. See, that's the thing we have to understand. Look at Revelation 21. Look at what's ultimately going to happen. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's where it's going. This natural side will cease to exist as you and I know it. It will no longer be like this. It's going to be as He is. You see, you and I react differently because our reality is the supernatural side in everything. It doesn't matter what's going on. The woe is me and the whiny stuff and the excuses we make of why we can't or why we don't or why we shouldn't or how we have to be, it's just nonsensical. If we live over here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
Verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Who has no hope? Those living in the natural world. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Our hope is in him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Well, that's interesting. The time of your stay implies what? It's temporary. This isn't your home. You don't stay in your home. It's your home. How do you have the keys to it? belongs to you. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but you with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus' ministry was talking about the kingdom of God coming near. And he proved it through his death, burial, and resurrection. That means every promise that he made is for you and I today. Not tomorrow, today, right now. So the reality that we should be walking in is whatever Christ did, whatever Christ said, it should be the expectations. The moral stuff will come naturally. But we walk in a supernatural reality where we are not moved by the things of this world. We are obedient. When we hear about somebody who's sick, what do we do? We lay hands on them. Why? Because he gave a commandment. You notice Peter didn't at the gate beautiful say, if it, Lord, if it be your will, make this man walk. He said, I ain't got no money. Stand up. I got things to do. He didn't say that last part. That's where we're at, guys. That's where we're at. We've got to get to the reality of what Jesus has said, the reality of what Jesus has done, and we should have an expectation of accepting nothing less. We've got to get there. We'll continue on this next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's in your word that you have captured all the reality of the things that you promise and how we can live our lives and how we should live our lives. The things that we say, the things that we do, it all matters. Lord, may we never waste an opportunity. May we never waste a moment on this earth that in our stay here we live fear and trembling, exhorting you, lifting your name up, that the world will see us and know who you are. Lord, we give you glory and honor. And we thank you for that each day is an opportunity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.